is Vanessa. And this is episode eight of You Are Here, titled Three Natural Resources Maps. And I will just walk you through how to find the three that we're going to talk about on the web. The first one's called Map of the Rivers Ualga, or Uy, oh, I don't know how to say it. Ualga. I think it might be Uyaga. Uyaga, yes. I bet that's it. Ukayali and Amazon. So basically a map of quite a bit of the Amazon. Anyway, the title map of the river is Uyalga, Ukayali, and Amazon. You can find it on the Library of Congress and just by searching Library of Congress with those uh, search terms. And then the second one is also on the Library of Congress website. It has a long title, but I think if you just search for view of the Panamint Range, mountains, mines, mills, and town site, you'll find it. The third one is called The Melting of Antarctica. And this one is a National Geographic map, but you can find it on a cartographer's website. Her name is Lauren C. Tierney. And if you just go to laurenctierney.com, you'll find it. It's spelled L-A-U-R-E-N-C-T-I-E-R-N-E-Y.com. And scroll down and it's the second from the bottom on the left. Uh, looks kind of like a half sphere of Antarctica, of the globe showing Antarctica. All right, so back to the first one, map of the rivers, well, Oyaga, Ukayali, and Amazon. So this is from one of our followers on Twitter. Um, his name is Ryan Matkey, and he suggested that we do some analysis of river maps. And I thought that was a really awesome idea. And this was one of the maps he sent. And I, you know, immediately was intrigued by it because it's this really wide map to accommodate the river. But otherwise the map is honestly really sparse, but intentionally so. They only wanted to highlight features alongside the river as the important features for this map, of course, because this map is about rivers. Um, and the rest of the page is really just filled with graticule and the graticule luckily helps fill in that empty space. Otherwise it would just feel empty rather than sparse. Uh, I did look in, so on the Library of Congress website, for all, all their resources, they always list authors and any other information that they have. So I checked out the authors, I checked out the authors and read that this was made by Herndon William Lewis. Jan Tosowski and Millard Phil Fillmore. Um, and like when I read that, I saw Lewis and then I like have to tell you this really funny story because when I read it, I was like, ooh, Lewis and Clark, is this like the same Lewis? And so then I went down this like deep dive and like read about Lewis and Clark. For those who don't know, um, in the United States, Lewis and Clark has like this really big history because of their expedition between 1804 and 1806 to explore the map, to explore and map the newly acquired territory known as the Louisiana Purchase. So while I was like looking into this, I was like, oh, cool, these are mappers and explorers. So they, of course, explored more than the United States, which I'm sure they did. <laughs> and, you know, they might be mapping these rivers. And then I suddenly realized like, ooh, I was reading William Clark and Meriwether Lewis. Those are the names of Lewis and Clark and combining the names together as William Lewis. So long story short, I was wrong. And I'm really glad that I realized it when I was like reading through the names. Um, I'm really like, <clears throat> I'm really bad at names. I don't know why, but, and I often 
connect names differently. Like this happens all the time in real life. So it was just funny that this happened with this map. And I was like, okay, who? So, um, so Hernand William Lewis, who is the main cartographer, I think, because he was listed first, um, he was in the US Navy. And he also was an explorer and a cartographer. Um, this map was created in 1851, so definitely not related to um, Lewis and Clark at all. And he was exploring uncharted territory, just like Lewis and Clark. In 1851, he explored this uncharted territory. And um, obviously, that means that it just was yet to be explored by Europeans and Americans and essentially just no one that was there. Um, so full stop, uncharted and unexplored by um, them. Because this area had been inhabited for thousands of years by numerous tribes of indigenous peoples who had intimate knowledge of the area. Um, just wanted to highlight that uh, the uncharted territory is very specific only to where they were from. So uh, yeah. And I just think it's a really cool map because it is so sparse. I feel like there could have been so much um, easily added to it in terms of textures, especially in the Amazon. You could easily want to add like forest texture and really embellish it. So the intentionality behind the simplicity really intrigued me. Um, I saw that there were relief lines here shortened by the hatchers that are really, you know, what a lot of people love from old maps. Um, I've mentioned it in a previous episode. This is called um, Caterpillar Mountains. So this Caterpillar, Caterpillar Mountain type relief. Uh, the oh my water. gosh. Yeah. I am so glad you mentioned that. I just have to interject just for a second because I didn't know what you meant by Caterpillar Mountains before, but now I completely know what you mean because not only is it on this map, but I've seen it on others. And a couple weeks ago, a friend on Twitter, Don Meltz, asked me specifically, have you ever seen this style of hatchering, uh, you know, for relief? And I said, no. Uh, and then ever since then, I keep seeing them. And now you are putting a name to what these things look like. So I am going to tweet to Don Meltz, tell him that thanks to you, we know that these are called Caterpillar Mountains. Okay, so now you can go ahead with what you were saying. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I remember the first time I read it as Caterpillar Mountain. I thought it was just someone referencing it. And then when I read more about it, it really is the way it's referenced a lot. I mean, it still may just be like a general layperson's lay term, but I like it. And it, it looks like a caterpillar. So it's like accurate. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a layman's term anymore. Now it's, now it's in our lexicon. It's going to be in all the textbooks for cartography from here on out. <laughs> uh, perfect. Uh, glad to help you that if it is not actually accurate. Um, so just like looking at this more, um, I also really liked that the rivers that offshooting sh rivers, offshooting rivers, the tributaries, yes, <laughs> the tributaries and offshooting rivers. Um, I really liked the technique that was used to. Uh, not feel like it was needed or required to draw them. And also probably they needed to explore them as well to actually be, have them be accurate for this map. Um, they em employed this nice technique that is also used today of kind of having dotted lines go off and then kind of tapering off into nothingness. And that's such a great way to highlight, hey, this continues. 
we're just choosing not to show it. And also to reiterate that there also was still a river label next to these offshoots. So it was very clear that that was just not the focus and also reiterated the main focus of the map, which of course is the only, the stuff in the middle that we see. <laughs> um, I like, um, when I was zooming in, cause you have to zoom into this map to really see the details, at least on the website, obviously like in person, it would be different. You could just sprawl it out. Um, I did have some issues with figure ground, um, like you mentioned in our pop culture episode. Uh, when I was zoomed in on just trying to focus on what was land and what was water, I did, I got confused in some spots because I just couldn't tell. Um, without, you know, other texture as reference, without trees, without symbols, without like water ripples and such, it was a little difficult for me and I had to zoom out sometimes just to reorient myself. Um, and I think there was some intentionality to help with that, with making some of the lines thicker. The upper bank of the river is consistently thicker. Um, so I assume that was to help with that and to kind of create this, create the sense of shadow and depth in the bank. And I see that also in some of the little islands within the river, but I think maybe it would have been helpful just to have a little more texture somewhere. Um, but I also acknowledge the minimalist, minimalist stuff in here works, especially just trying to showcase the labels in the river itself. Um, oh, yeah. And I don't know what limitations this guy had. Maybe he didn't have time. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, the shadowing uh, on the south side of the land is really cool. Um, something that definitely I've tried to mimic in modern maps. And then the dots are really neat as the tributaries sort of fade out. Um, so I wanted to tell you that I was looking at this map and my daughter who's in college, but she's studying at home because the pandemic came in and she was, she's like, what are you looking at? And I said, here it is. And it was zoomed out. And she said, oh, it's a line. It's so exciting in this really sarcastic voice. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 here, let's zoom in. And so I zoomed in and showed her. And she said, oh, okay, you know, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but at first it does just look like a line and it's going from the, uh, you know, one side of South America to the other. So it was basically showing you maybe how you could take a boat or, you know, follow your way all the way from the Amazon basin, all the way to Lima, Peru on the other side of the continent, uh, which I assume is the purpose of the map. And so in, in, uh, that being the purpose, it's kind of like showing a single road and all the things along it to help you get from one place to another. And so that in itself is really interesting. And I think that you touched on how unique it is because it doesn't show anything else except for the river route from one side of the continent to the other. Yeah. You know, you saying it that way also, it reminds me of a map we talked about in a previous episode where it was one of the travel maps uh, going from London to somewhere else. There was two London maps in that episode. And it was only just the road, like following up and down. It was a different format um, where it went like up and then down and then up and then down. And that was the one that had the different compasses. But it was very similar to this, actually, where it was just the road and then the road, the side roads, like the turns, it kind of faded off, but were still labeled. And that was made in Europe and at a very different time than this. But it's interesting to see this actually replicated in this river map. Um, and I'm 
you know, I'm sure that wasn't inspired, that map didn't inspire this. It's just a similar sort of really focusing on um, this sort of river system. I right. like, I really like it. And I know, like, obviously, like looking at it from, you know, the really zoomed out aspect, it does only look like a line. But this really, I think, would look impactful in person because it is sectioned into 30, it's made from 30 different pieces of paper or parchment and, and it's mounted onto a cloth. So this is very large. I wonder if like pieces of it, no, I guess it had to have been like one full map given their like blank pages too. I was about to say like, what if this was like in a book and then you like turn the pages, but that wouldn't mm. make sense based off of the format either. Either way, like I think this would be a really interesting, like today, an interesting poster to have um, to highlight a river. Um, I like yes. do. I also like the way the labels are because they are, you know, following the curvature of the river. There's some nice um, kerning happening. Oh yeah, <laughs> the word. <laughs> yeah, the spacing between the the character cliffs. Mm -hmm. It's nice. Yes, um, I agree. And uh, I was looking really closely at the Amazon River Base and I got curious as, you know, a river, especially an estuarine system, can change really rapidly compared to other ecosystems. Uh, uh, and so I wanted to see, like, has this changed since, uh, you know, in the last 150 years? So I went on to uh, a satellite view image to see, and a lot of it is still quite the same, but some of these little islands at the mouth of the Amazon have changed in shape a little bit. You know, if we assume that this map is correct in terms of what it's showing, then some of these things have changed a little bit today. Um, so it can be, have some historical value that way as well. Yeah, that's a great point. It's definitely nice to compare. Well, especially, you know, given there's a lot happening in Amazon in terms of natural shifts that are the man-made shifts. Speaking of man-made shifts, <laughs> our next map is about mining, which definitely has heavy impact on the landscape and um, continues to today. Uh, and this map is called the View of the Panamint Range Mountains, Mines, Mills, and Town Site. And then also the lower half is the Sherman Town property of the Panamint Mining and Concentration Works. Yeah, this is a super unique layout. It's more of an informational type of poster layout because we see the range of the mountains from a front view. And then uh, we can also see sort of a top-down map view of what things look like. And that is underneath the mountain view. So that was pretty unique in my mind. Um, and, you know, I guess Panamint, and so this was 1875 is when this was made. And this was sort of a short-lived town. It's now a ghost town. And it really was only a boom mining town for a couple of years before this whole place flooded. And you can get a little bit, if you zoom in on the lower left part of this map, you see a salt pond and a salt marsh. And by the way, the texture for the salt marsh is really cool. I worked last year on salt marsh patterns. It's kind of unbelievable what cartographers do sometimes. I probably spent a week on patterning for salt marshes. <laughs> and um, so I was super interested in these little 
horizontal lines with uh, straight up and down hatch marks on top of them is very common for marshes, but seeing it hand-drawn, so each one is a little bit different, is uh, very cool. Uh, but I digress into sort of the nitty-gritty of cartography there, but Anyway, because there's a salt marsh at the edge of this uh, mining town, that might be a little bit of a clue into uh, the fact that it might be an area that would flood. And indeed it did and was wiped out. I, well, that's sad. <laughs> that's sad that it was wiped out. Um, <laughs> I really also liked the salt marsh. Um, not only like the beautiful texture that's there in the lower half of the map, but I really enjoyed seeing the parallel of it um, and seeing that shape and just the hype, you know, like close to realism depiction that was really different in the mountain range um, detailed side. And just to speak on the level of detail in this map, um, I believe that I mean, I'm fairly certain this map is a lithograph print map. So this is different than the other old maps we've talked about um, pre-1900s, which was woodblock and copperplate. Um, we're still seeing some aesthetic elements that, you know, carry over, which of course everything we do as designers and cartographers and, and artists always carry over in some fashion, especially if it's around the same time period. But he like here you're seeing the repetitive textual patterns, like the caterpillar hashing is definitely stuff that has existed since woodblock prints. But some of the major differences are the level of depth and color and texture variance in the mountain range, um, especially in the level of detail in terms of smoother transitions in color and texture. You really can see that in the smoke detail above the little train. Um, in the top mountain half, uh, there's a little train on the tracks and there's some really detailed smoke. And also you can tell it's a lithograph because of the very harsh line stopping the color block of the top half versus the bottom half. And you also see this harsh line stop in terms of the fill color in the polygon fills in the Stewart and Jones property polygon, as well as the square buildings of the Sherman town uh, representation. Yeah. And as always, um, in terms of history cartography and today, uh, the differences in aesthetics in what we see in maps and everywhere else is always um, the availability of what software exists. So the, the software changed, so that means that yet again, more finer tuned details and controlled and, and control existed. Uh, and there are multiple techniques for lithograph mapping. So, and I am not an expert in all types of lithography, uh, but I can read a quote just to explain a little more how that, um, you know, let exact exactness exists because um, it does vary. Before with woodblock and copperplate, it was engraving tools. Um, I'm just gonna read a quote for my thesis. <laughs> uh, nice. So, so um, lithography didn't become a popular map printing choice until the early 1820s, and by 1825, lithography was established an established choice for cartographic printing. Um, printers reversely drew maps onto really uh, specific types of stone, mainly limestone because it was porous um, and it had a special, like if you used hydrophobic or water repellent, um, things like crayons, pens, and oil-based inks, you could then etch parts of the limestone and then also treat the stone with a different mixture and that would affect the porosity and water absorbency 
of the areas that were inked so that they that were not inked so that they would remain not inked. That means that they could really be very intentional in painting a very linear space um, with that stuff and just ensuring that there was no ink penetration, which means when it was put onto paper, it would just remain a straight line. Um, and that essentially is how those straight lines and also the level of detail could happen because you could do etching as well as doing some more painting of ink on top of different areas with like brushes and stuff. So as where uh, you're saying that with lithographs, you can finally have a straight line that where the ink doesn't bleed at all. Whereas with copper yeah. plates and, and uh, woodblock. Uh, woodblock, thank you. You couldn't really achieve that super straight line. That's interesting. Yeah, and it could be approximated, but inevitably, just because of how it was pressed down, um, there would be some like splotching, and especially with woodblock, there tend to be a lot of splotching. And copper plate got better, but I would say also woodblock and copper plate, often people would also just paint in um, colors later. Um, and because they are painting it in later, they like if they're really careful, they could paint inside the line, but sometimes they like you would see things painted outside the line and that was really common. And also like one of the reasons people like old maps because it kind of is part of the aesthetic, but it's kind of lithography is when things really start to shift and you start to see a lot more, I guess, perfection in the way things are colored <laughs> and how lines work. Um, and that really relates, I guess, like I think <laughs> I would say I didn't memorize as much about lithography printing and stuff in terms of the aesthetic shifts, just because my interest heavily lied in when I did the thesis. And since then, in trying to reproduce interesting textures and things that don't exist today in the softwares that we use and the softwares we use now are just always, you know, producing perfect lines and perfect color blocks and such. So that's also like, this is the first time I had a reference my thesis because <laughs> we talked about that last yeah. time. After that, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad you did. And that's a super good point about the differences between old maps and people love old maps. They love to have them on their walls. They love to go to the museums um, to, to see them. And I think that that's because they have a much more artistic quality because some of these blemishes or imperfections, as you've mentioned before, that they have and that we don't have today. And I'm not saying that it's bad that we don't have them today. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons why it's great that we don't have to deal with imperfections anymore. But um, I can see how we can kind of study these old techniques and we can mimic them too with our new software if we want to. Uh, so, or we don't have to, which is kind of a nice uh, option to have. Um, I wanted to delve into the history. The history of this is kind of interesting in that Panamint itself, I had to look into what even this was. And I mean, basically, like I said, it's a ghost town now, it's in California. Um, and it was a silver and copper mine or series of mines, they're all labeled on the upper mountain range with numbers, um, which, you know, where the mines are. And so silver and copper, and basically the silver was discovered by three bandits. And I love that they used the term bandit in whatever history I was using, I was looking at. Um, so three bandits were hiding in this area and they discovered silver. So they made the original claim. And then these two senators, Senator Stewart and Senator Jones, who you can see own it all at this point of when the map was made, they bought out the claim 
uh, from the bandits and then started mining, you know, in earnest um, in this area. And then about a year or two later, it was all washed out. Um, but it wasn't yielding quite as much as some of the more famous uh, mines of that era. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. You know, these bandits found this place and then they all, then like out of nowhere, 2000 people showed up and made a little town. There's even a post office on this map. Like if you zoom in, uh, which number is it? Let's see, number 24. And if you zoom in to number 24, which is just above the train, it's just this little like house type of thing. It's so cute. Um, but a lot of detail on this to show you where each little structure is that they thought was important to show on the map, uh, as well as the train, like you said, with the smoke. And, um, and then, you know, so it was just a town for a couple of years and now it's not. I like love knowing that history, as you told that story, it just, it feels like that could be turned into a movie or a TV show, honestly, because you know, like you'd be following the lives of these, they could make stuff up about the lives of the bandits. So they'd, they'd be like this like heroes, but bandits. And I'm sure they could make up like, oh, they're like good bandits. They're like Robin Hood. And then they make money and they're heroes that like go off and live um, a happy life. And maybe like they could like frame the senators as these bad people because sometimes, you know, senators are like, I've seen like so many Westerns where people coming in from the US government were like kind of portrayed as bad because like the, the people in the town just wanted to be on their own and they're the, the interesting like Western culture and then having it fail and the floods, like that'd be so much drama. Like uh, someone should turn that into a TV show. I would watch it. <laughs> they should, they, they should, especially this one because I read that it was a little bit of a lawless town and it was indeed so dangerous that Wells Fargo would not put up a, uh, uh, whatever you call it, a, an outlet there. And so they had to like, it, they had to take the silver and, and, and uh, like melt it into cannonball shapes in order to get it out and sell it because there was no bank there. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, the history is really interesting. I think they could definitely make a movie out of this. I'm on Hollywood or Netflix. I want Netflix to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, so there, so I, in the lower map, the legend is labels as explanation and yes. I know that has no like inherent significance anyway, but I really loved that they labeled it as explanation. Explanation. I have that noted as well. I've never seen a legend labeled as explanation period. There's a period at the end of explanation. Yeah, too. And it's like, that is literally what a legend <laughs> is. And I appreciated the directness. It like, I don't know, made reading legend just be like, this is explaining the symbology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's mental note if you want to label your legend, it could be explanation period. <laughs> I like it. I I also really, I mean, it it was nice to see this like juxtaposition of heavy detail versus kind of more generalized. I feel like that made it really an interesting sort of visual texture here too. Um, the lower map is is honestly just a large detailed inset of the area that's highlighted in the mountain range area above. So that's some nice visual reinforcement of the exact location through creating that shape and matching the lower half. Um, and I noted before the salt pond and marsh pattern in the lower map do match the the top of the map in terms of you know spatial reinforcement. So that was kind of nice too, like beyond just the outline, you kind of saw that and understood where it was. On the flip side, 
because of noticing the salt pond and the shape being almost exact and, and the outline also being exact, I was a little confused because I wasn't sure if the below map was supposed to be flat or was an oblique representation that just mm. all the detail. So then I wasn't sure if it was, I feel like it is a flat map, and that, but then I just was a little confused about how to interpret the relationship. <laughs> oh, because, and I, I get it too. Thanks for putting that into words because I had that same sort of issue where you could visual, you could think that this was just some big old flat frontage of a building for a movie set or something because it looks vertical on the uh, the outline of the inset looks vertical on the frontage map up top. Yeah, is that what you're saying? I don't know if that's yeah, what you're that's saying. That's definitely but- what. I was like, is this a one, two, three, four, five, like six story yeah. building? And then maybe it is. I mean, I guess it is, but then it just, you know, then that also not perhaps in the explanation area, but should have been noted because of course the lower map does look very much like what you would see from a bird's eye view map. So then it does to me, confuse me, especially, I don't know. I, it might just be that you're looking at a not bird's eye view and just directly seeing the vertical wow. nature because I don't, um, now that, I don't now that know I'm more. It does look like that even the, I don't know, the Stuart Jones, Jones property area, I suppose it is aligning directly. I don't know. Yeah. Like they're I guess saying I'm that they own. I I am more confused now than when we started because I thought this was a top down, but you're right. It might be a cross section. This is another instance of didn't fully realize until we really started talking about it. (laughs) But I think that's like great in that this makes this all the more interesting. (laughs) Yeah, they needed to make it much more clear what they were doing here, I think is the lesson. Um, and especially now that it's a ghost town, I mean, if this, if the place that you're mapping is no longer there anymore, you really need to be able to look at the map to know. Yeah. But then like, sorry, still thinking about it on the flip side again, this like six store, these like squares in Mm -hmm. the equivalent shape in the mountain map for lack of a better word, there's nothing there in the outline except for land. So then I'm more confused. Mm-hmm. There's just two houses and they're not, well, one of the houses is in the like number three area. So I don't know. <laughs> the houses have no shading, no shadow. We mm-hmm. can't tell. I anyway, if anyone knows, feel free to tweet at us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm my bet is still that it's a top down, but yeah. I know what you're saying. It could be a cross section. We just don't know for sure. Okay. Yeah. Whew. Crazy map. All right. So the melting of Antarctica is next. And so this is still a natural, you know, we're obviously talking about another natural feature here, which is Antarctica and that the resource is the ice. 
so that's our natural resource for this map, uh, titled The Melting of Antarctica by Lauren Tierney and made for National Geographic. And National Geographic often puts out infographics like this that are just absolutely beautiful. This one is no exception. Um, the fact that it is primarily blue and white, I think is very notable. Um, I believe it was Cindy Brewer who in one of her books on cartography said that people really like blue. They don't like yellow as much. I think she did some research on this, but they really like blue. And so that is part of what really lends the beauty to this map is all of the blue. Um, and then another color that was really striking on here was the purple or the lavender, which we don't see a lot in these more modern maps. And I just love, it's my favorite color. Um, so making ice shelves sort of this pur wispy purplish color really lends not only a bit of beauty to it, but also uh, you can tell it's cold. I don't know. There's something about the wispy purple uh, features that, you know, you know, these are a separate feature, ice shelves, but sort of the same as the rest of the ice, a little bit different um, and cold. Yeah, I agree. All those, all those details really all come together to not only give a beautiful and informative map, but to make you really like feel the map. Like you feel more than it just being a map. Like it really makes you feel like it's earth. You understand it's cold. Uh, I I wrote down that the way it's, you know, the way it utilizes colors and textures and everything is great, but also the way it's laid out, like utilizing the perspective of kind of the projection is what made it this like curvature globe. And they chose to utilize that to also highlight it as earth from space by leaving the empty space is black and allowing that black to fill in the unused space. And not only like they chose not to fill it in with other information, which they definitely could have because this map clearly has a lot of graphics and information. So that decision was very intentional in design as a backdrop to then push the projection forward visually. And then also the way it was colored blue and really like the textures of the ice and the colors that went into the ice, the light grays, the shadows, and you know, looking at the edge of the projection, which now I think just looks like earth more than just like a map and a projection because they added this glow on the edge of the curvature that is exactly what you're used to seeing if you look at um, earth, an image of earth from space, you see the glow and like haziness that our atmosphere creates and adding that little subtle piece in really, I think, knocked it out of the park in terms of making you feel like this is earth. This map isn't just about Antarctica. It like really is connecting you to everything. And honestly speaking, um, this map is one of my favorite maps like ever. I remember when it came out, I just spent so much time looking at it because there's so much intricate detail in here and it's so beautiful. It's a great example of how to combine, combine beauty and data and create something that's really informative and ties in standard things for maps like you know labels and stuff alongside quite a lot of informative text, many graphics, there's a lot of graphics in there, a legend and also an inset map this is just a really excellent example. And I wanted to highlight that uh, Lauren Tierney 
wrote a blog post about how she and her team not only um, she gave the insight of National Geographic's history of mapping Ar Antarctica over time, but she also talked about the map design process from sketch to final map. And I wanted to highlight that because if anyone is interested in it, since it's such a wonderful example of a really well-designed map in like geo-visualization, uh, I can say the URL, it's like a really easy one. It's source.opennews.org slash articles slash melting dash Antarctica. So I love talking about design process thinking and such, but I didn't want to take the time to really dive into that because um, Lauren has already taken the time to do so. So anyone interested, please read that. Um, but uh, moving away from that, I will. So <laughs> I don't know, this is going to sound silly, but I love, love, love the way the title and explainer text and inset were so intentionally placed. Um, it could have like adding text on something like this, you know, round earth could easily make it feel unbalanced, but having it kind of nestle and hug against the curvature of the edge of the earth on that left side helped kind of, you know, make it still feel like it was flowing. And then with, if it had just been the title and explainer text, there would have been a little gap, but they utilized this graphic that they knew that they're going to add this extra inset map and just placed it there. So they filled what would have been kind of maybe an awkward empty space and kind of perfectly created this flow. Um, so it's another great example of showing how marginalia and graphics can not cause imbalance in your map, but in fact, continue to push balance in your map and not make those extra pieces feel disjointed. And this actually continues on the other side. Um, there's a little bit of explainer text on the upper right. And uh, that explainer text is part of the Antarctica map itself. And maybe on its own, it would have felt a little out of place, but with the intentionality of putting the Nat Geo logo just slightly placed above the, like in the upper right of that explainer text, that completely helped to balance it out. And it helped create this sort of like flow line where it felt like it belonged. And if you look over to the left side of the map to where the title starts, it actually is matching in height. So it, it, it looks more like it was supposed to be there, like this intentional grid. And that logo could have gone in the upper side of the map or somewhere else random, because probably in most cases in publications, the logo probably would go in the upper right or upper left. But they chose not to do that and use the logo as a means to balance it out. And I also like wanted to say, again, that's like a good use of marginalia and like interior designers actually utilize this a lot, making a sort of fake grid, um, an eyeline grid, whether it's a grid or just like a shape that'll help create a harmonious feeling. And that is honestly how a lot of people accomplish like eclectic art walls and decor and like somehow make it all seem like it belongs together. Like if you think about this map is just like this huge art wall and like having so many pieces and they perfectly fit together, that's essentially what's happening here. And that's kind of a tangent, but it also is directly related because it's all design. <laughs> yeah, I talk a lot about how to align different text elements on a map and being intentional about it is a mark of somebody who's been doing this for a while. Um, getting everything aligned just right instead of sort of sloppily just uh, placing things in the empty space. Um, and I wanted to note uh, that as you were talking about the title, The Melting 
of Antarctica and where it's placed. I think the reason they placed it on the left-hand side is because they actually have a little bit more of the globe showing on the left-hand side than the right-hand side. And that's because of the feature itself. Uh, Antarctica is a little bit more on the left-hand side of this map than it is on the right due to the Antarctic Peninsula uh, outcropping there. And so they had to have a little bit more real estate over there on the left, uh, which they've then balanced out by the title and placing that on the left. And I like that. I think that someone might've been tempted to make a curving title, like the melting of Antarctica around the top that curves around. But I think this lends it a certain... Um, uh, sophistication, having it be a horizontal. The other thing that I was thinking, well, there's two other things that I think make this spectacular. One is the fact that it shows what's under the ice on the same exact map. That is a really unique element that I have not seen very often. And if somebody had asked me, hey, we want to show at the Antarctic ice, and we also want to show this under the ice, which I'm assuming is some kind of LIDAR data but uh, that they've made into a hill shade, although don't quote me on that because I'm not sure. But at any rate, they had this other data set that they wanted to show. I would have been tempted to have two maps side by side. Um, but here, they've combined the two, and they've really made the point that it's under the ice. Um, you don't need to be an expert map reader to understand that they've um, intentionally cut it out and sh showing you what's underneath. Um, so that I thought was a really brilliant uh, way to solve that issue. The second one is just something that other people may not notice, but I often notice these days is that some of the texts, like if you see the West Antarctica label, it is not in black, which I think a novice would be tempted. Yeah, it's it's not contrasting super well. It's enough so that you can read it. It's this sort of uh, uh, bluish gray against the white. And uh, it's dark enough so that you can read it, but it's not dark enough to interrupt your eye sweep across the page. This is the mark of an expert cartographer. They do the same thing in the ocean with some of the labels there. The um, Weddell Sea label is just a darker blue hue than the regular blue of the ocean. And so it doesn't disrupt your reading, but it's there if you want to see it. That is honestly um, one of my favorite things. <laughs> that to give people advice on in terms of how to make a map less cluttered or less contrasted because the attempt <clears throat> or the, I don't know, what do I want to say? The, obviously like when things are exported out of the softwares we use, they usually are just this automatic color, which is typically black. And so changing everything else on the map is usually what people think of. And then often people don't think about changing that heavily contrasted thing. And it's such a great way to, as you said, not interrupt eyesight as, not interrupt like your, I don't know, visual cognition as you're moving across the map and you're just using it as reference. And I think it's a great way to push things to the background while still adding 
a lot of information. And that is done across this map. Like so many colors were so carefully chosen to really indicate something important, but also much of it was still kind of background sort of reference information rather than the stuff that they wanted to highlight. And then the highlighted information includes the ice flow velocity, as Gretchen noted, is this like purplish hue that definitely pops up off of this whitish grayish toned um, map. And the red, of course, pops up more too. And then using the white text, which ties into the ice, but it also is intentionally used because it is really contrasted against the, the blue and the black and using contrasting colors for labels or any other important information like data that matters. Um, and bringing that to the foreground through just a subtle contrast shift is so helpful and allowing all the other colors that you choose to kind of be more subtle and visually go back, go back, literally go back <laughs> uh, to the background. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I like, didn't even think about that just because, uh, I don't know, as you said, it was just so subtle. It wasn't, I like read it, I noticed it and I moved on, which is exactly <laughs> what I wanted. It is exactly what an expert cartographer wants their map reader to do. And so I just think that's a, a tell that somebody's been in the business for a long time and knows what they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, last but not least on my on my end anyway, is that I just absolutely loved the South Pole marker, which looks like this little golf uh hole with a flag coming out of it and it's labeled South Pole in the least contrasting color you can think of. So it's just, you really have to like look for it. Um, and there's a shadow that somebody decided to put on there. And I just wonder how big that would be in real life at this scale, <laughs> but um, it's cute. It's a nice little element. Somebody was having fun with this map too, uh, even amid all the seriousness. Yeah, I loved that too. And I mean, like, I really could stare at this map forever. Like I said, this is one of my favorite maps, like ever, honestly, that I've seen. Every single spot you look, there's just more information, more detail, more things you want to take away. And, it, you know, if you're a cartographer, possibly try to replicate as well. I actually, <laughs> I wrote down in my notes, because I was, I wrote down so many things. I eventually just wrote more. There are so many details. And honestly, this could be dedicated to an entire episode, really. But um, I think it is like important to not dedicate a, so long, because I know I could talk about this for like an hour. So just make sure you take the time to explore this map. And if you want to learn more, definitely read um, Lauren's um, post about it because it is really informative and useful. And, and Lauren actually gave a talk about this map as well um, uh, for the North American Cartographic Information Society, which is N-A-C-I-S. And I believe it's recorded and that would be on YouTube if that's also something you're interested in watching. Great. Well, um, thank you for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying the Your Hair podcast, please remember to uh, send us a few bucks at the bottom of yourhairpodcast.com. And if you ever want to, you know, learn more about everything that we said already, remember that there is an upcoming book. So flag that for future wants. <laughs> Yay. All right. Well, until next time. Bye. Bye for now.